The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and open up with me to Matthew chapter 26. As uh, believers, we recognize that all of Scripture is God-breathed, all of Scripture is holy, sacred, inspired, but there are certain passages that we would more immediately recognize as having a certain weight and a certain heaviness to them. Now, we think of passages like Exodus 34, where God uh, reveals his character to Moses as his glory passes by Moses and he hides him in the cleft of the rock. Or we think about passages like Isaiah chapter 6, uh, where Isaiah sees the, the Lord high and exalted and his, the train of his robe filling the temple. And we could also think of a passage like Matthew 26, where we're privileged to have an opportunity to hear the words of Jesus Christ as he speaks to his Father. We walk away from passages like this uh, with the, uh, the, the sense that we were privileged to tread on holy ground. And that's the kind of passage that we have in Matthew chapter uh, 26. In his book, The Hidden Prayer Life of Our Lord, uh, David McEntry says this, uh, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, said the Lord to Moses when he turned aside to see the bush that burned and was not consumed. The place whereon thou standest is holy ground. One scarcely dares speak of Gethsemane and the midnight conflict where our Redeemer agonized and overcame. Angels may have gathered round in awful reverence to gaze upon the petitioning Savior, who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him out of death and having been heard for his godly fear, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This is a passage that should be considered holy ground for us as believers, because the words that are recorded here in this chapter were so private that not even his disciples heard them when they were uttered. There's a personal and, and private nature to this prayer where the Son of God poured out his soul and laid out his heart bare before the Father in a moment of anguish. And uh, we've been given the great privilege of being close enough to be within earshot of this inter-Trinitarian conversation. So why don't you follow with me as I read Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keeping, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the 
Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We are, we are so blessed to have texts like this that remind us of the priority of prayer. Uh, Father, to remind us of the, uh, the weapons that you've given us for our warfare and, and really how they're all energized by prayer. And Father, how we depend on prayer to, to win the battles that are before us. And uh, Father, I, uh, we thank you for the example of our champion, Jesus Christ, and the example that he gives to us as he even prepared himself for the crucifixion, and he prepared himself through prayer. Uh, so, Father, I pray that uh, we would follow in the footsteps of our Savior, and Father, that we would even tremble, Lord, as we behold the, the glory of God that's revealed here in this text. Uh, Father, we, I pray that you would uh, use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our men spent this uh, last weekend examining uh, scripture and spiritual warfare, and uh, it's a war that's won through truth and also won by prayer. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is just the, the battle that we engage in uh, on our knees. And what we find here in Matthew chapter 26 is that Jesus engaged in that same kind of battle. This is a scene that takes place late on Thursday night, which was the night of Jesus' betrayal. Uh, Judas has already slithered off into the night to gather a mob to arrest Jesus while Jesus and the 11 disciples finished the Passover celebration, marched up the Mount of Olives after singing hymns of deliverance to God. And in Matthew 26 and verse 30, it says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives wasn't an unfamiliar location for the disciples. It was a place that they frequently traveled to. It was on the east side of Jerusalem, and they would pass by uh, this way when they approached Jerusalem from Bethany, uh, the home of uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It was also a place of instruction. If you remember, it was on the, the Mount of Olives that the disciples came to Jesus privately over in Matthew chapter 24 and said, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse, right? Because it was here that Jesus gave that instruction. But it was also a place of prayer. In Luke chapter 22, it lets us know that it was actually Jesus' custom to travel up to the Mount of Olives for prayer. In Luke 22 and verse 39, it says, And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Important words that they should have remembered even here. Christ would often seek places of solitude for prayer. Uh, one writer said, Could mount, cold mountains in the midnight air often witness the fervor of his prayer? And this was just a habitual practice in the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew 14, 23 says, After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Mark 1, 35, it says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Mark 6, 46, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke 6, 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. 
Luke 9, 28, some eight days after these things, after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus going up on the mountain to pray. And then somehow we think that we can get away without it. This wasn't every prayer that he went off to the mountain. It wasn't every time. But we find it frequently enough to know that this was a pattern of Jesus Christ to get away by himself so that he could commune with his Father. So this is my question for you, Baltimore Bible Church. Does it surprise you that Jesus would find it so necessary to pray, to separate himself for prayer? Does it surprise you that this kind of prayer would be so prominent in the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's on the earth? McKintry says the surprise of the onlookers lay in this, that one so mighty, so richly endowed with spiritual power, should find it necessary for himself to repair to the resources of strength, that there he might refresh his wearied spirit. To us, the wonder is still greater that he, the Prince of Life, the eternal Word, the only begotten of the Father, should prostrate himself in meekness before the throne of God, making entreaty for grace to help in every time of need. And again, if our Lord found it so necessary to be strengthened and sustained through prayer, what makes us think that we stand a chance without it? The believer's prayer life is critical in the battle against sin. Those are words that we heard even this weekend from our brother Ray Maringer. The believer's prayer life is critical in the battle against sin. You know, now I lay me down to sleep is not going to cut it. You know, there's, there's, there's time for quick popcorn prayers, right? You know, like when Peter's going down, he, all he has time to say is, Lord, help, save me, right? There's times for that. Time for the quick popcorn prayers, I call them. But there's also that time that you set aside extended time to commune with your Father as well. Sustained times of private prayer where you bear your soul before God, pleading for grace and help in the time of need. And even in these words, I'm speaking to myself. There's those times that necessitate that, right? Where are those times in your life? And I find it instructive that Jesus here would slip away to a private place for prayer. Again, there's uh, nothing wrong with praying quietly in your heart, you know, in the midst of a crowd. But the privacy of the wilderness and the mountains provided Jesus the freedom to openly express his heart before the Father. And maybe for you that's, you know, going down to a basement or taking a walk in a park or uh, waiting for your house to be empty to pray, or or shutting the door to your room, or even a prayer retreat. It's easier to to stay alert and and focus while you're you're up and speaking out loud at times. And I I believe that this is the practice here, that Jesus just cried out. I mean, it it talks about it here. He he cried out to the Lord. It's a lot easier to become drowsy and distracted when you're, you know, silently praying in your head on a pillow. Jesus, Jesus prayed out loud. I mean, he was earnest in his prayers. And my point is, is that you can't pass by the, the prayer life of the Lord without taking something away from his example. He left us an example to follow in his steps. And this was one of those examples. Christ got away to pray. And he actually selected a specific place on the Mount of Olives for prayer. Luke 22, verse 40, simply calls it the place. When they got to the place, they, they knew where it was. Both Matthew and Mark tell us the name of the place was called Gethsemane. The Gospel of John tells us that it was a garden, which is why we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. 
The word Gethsemane is a, a word that simply means olive press. And it's believed that this might have been a private garden located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives where olives would have been picked and pressed into oil and Jesus and his disciples went there and this olive press became known as the place of prayer where, where, where his soul was pressed out before the Lord. Even Judas knows where to come. It was so well known that Judas, you know, gathers this angry mob and knows exactly where to take them. I know the place. That's the place that he always goes to pray. I know where he's at. And to think here that Judas would be so bold to lead an angry mob into the place of prayer. And it's there that he's going to do his dirty deed. Can you believe that? To tread on this holy ground and to bring this angry mob in in order to seize him. What wickedness. And actually, when you think about it, Jesus could have easily picked another place this night, couldn't he? If it was his goal to escape, you know, there's many other places that he could have gone to pray. But he was resolved to come back to the place and leave everything in the hands of his heavenly Father. What a wonderful example. Jesus wasn't ducking Judas. He went right to the place of prayer where he knew that Judas could find him. So here we find Jesus in his familiar place in a peaceful garden in the cool of the night, beneath the stars, in order to commune with his father as he often did. But this night was not like any other night. Earlier on this very night, Jesus informed his disciples that one of them was a traitor. Verse 21 says, as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. All the rest of them would become deserters. Verse 31, it says, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. One of you will betray me, the rest of you will fall away. And then he also lets them know that the shepherd's going to be struck. Verse 31 again, it says, For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And the higher that Christ moves up this mountain, it's the closer that he gets to that event, and the heavier that the weight becomes until he finally reaches the place of prayer. And it's at this moment that he can't bear it anymore. And he tells his disciples, Sit over over here while I go over there and pray. There's going to be three seasons of triumphant prayer in the life of our Lord, which highlights the the power, the protection, and the persistence of prayer, uh, followed by uh, at least one example that highlights the priority of prayer. So we'll take a look at it in that order, the power, protection, persistence, and priority of prayer. Like I said, this weekend our men examined the defeat in the life of Peter. We actually looked at that on Saturday morning, yesterday morning, and today we're going to look at the triumph of Christ. In contrast, the triumph of our Lord. Let's take a look at the first point, the power of prayer, verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. As Jesus approaches the Garden of Gethsemane, it's clear that he's already bearing, to a certain degree, the awful weight of sin. Verse 37, we're told that he's grieved and distressed. Verse 38, his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. 
Verse 39, it says he went a little beyond them and fell on his face under the weight of it all. And this, is, this isn't hyperbole or exaggeration or figure of speech that, that, you know, Jesus fell down. No, he literally fell face down. This is what happened. What was it that caused the Savior to be under such an intensity of stress and pressure that he would literally collapse under the weight of it? There are some who would have us believe that, you know, what Jesus is contemplating is his own death, as if Jesus was afraid to die. You wonder, are we talking about the same Jesus? <laughs> Jesus is the one who spoke about death as nothing more than sleep. If you remember, there was a synagogue official named uh, Jairus, whose daughter was close to death, and he came to find Jesus to heal his daughter from sickness. But by the time Jesus arrived, she had already died, and he, he referred to the, the child's death as asleep. He says the child has not died, but is asleep. We all remember Lazarus, John chapter 11. And he spoke to his disciples, and he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Jesus spoke so casually about death. He spoke about Jairus' daughter. Oh, she's sleeping. Lazarus, oh, he's sleeping. And now Jesus comes to his death, and he's like, oh, I just can't, I can't, I can't bear it. I can't believe that I might die. Are we talking about the same Jesus? Jesus is not afraid to die. That's not what he's contemplating here. There are others who would say that Jesus was afraid of the pain of the cross, which also doesn't make sense. Earlier in the same gospel of Matthew, Jesus speaks to the disciples about being scourged and persecuted, put to death. And listen to what he says in chapter 10 and verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. Chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. So now are we thinking of, of Jesus as being afraid of the pain? Jesus isn't afraid of the pain. So, so what, what is it that caused Jesus to be, be crushed in this way? What is he contemplating it's not the scourging. It's not the persecution of the enemies. It's not afraid of death. Christ was not fearful of those things. The text lets us know that what he was agonizing over, and it's what he prayed three times about, let this cup pass from me. This cup, that's, that's the, the content of its prayer. That's what he's praying about. And what's the cup? It's not the cup of death. It's not the cup of torture. It's the cup of God's wrath. That's what he's contemplating. This is the same cup that's referred to back in Jeremiah 25. In verse 15, it says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath. It's the cup of wrath. Revelation 14, verse 9, it says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. So Jesus is deeply grieved, deeply distressed to the point of death. He falls flat on his face in, in agony just over the thought of bearing the wrath of God. That's what he's contemplating. Death and torture are nothing compared to the wrath of God. Nothing. And it's so amazing to me that there are people that you would talk to about escaping hell and they laugh it off as if it's a joke. Death and torture are nothing 
compared to bearing the wrath of God, and you're going to play games with that? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He, he was going to bear the curse, bear the wrath of God. He became the object of the Father's wrath. Every sin of every person who would ever believe was placed upon Christ, and he was going to bear the full brunt of the wrath of God for those sins. That's, that's what's going on here. We quote this verse often in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be sin. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus actually became a sinner. Just like when you're, you're saved, you don't actually become righteous and perfect. But what happens? Jesus takes on the, the penalty for your sin. And we can take on the, the benefit of his righteousness. That's what happens. It's the exchange, right? Jesus was about to take upon himself the sins of every person who would ever believe and bear the wrath of God for every one of those sins. It would have taken one of us an eternity to bear our own sins. Can you imagine the innumerable people in heaven all of their sins placed upon Jesus Christ? Unbearable. Unbearable. The full strength of the wine of the wrath of God mixed in its full strength. The cup of his anger was given to Christ, and he had to drink it down to the last drop. That's, that's what he was doing. We can't even begin to comprehend what this was like. It would have been fearful and terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God just for my sins. Every sin of every person who would ever believe. Jesus was grieved and distressed over just the thought of it. This is what's going on. He was literally in pain over the idea. Shaken to the core. The word for being deeply grieved is a word peri-lupas. Peri means around and lupas means grief or sadness. Basically what it's saying is that Jesus was engulfed by it. It's, it's all around him. He, he was drowning in grief and distress at this point. So much so that his knees buckled and he slams face, ground, face down on the ground, face first. If you flip over to, to Luke chapter 22, doesn't mention this in, in Matthew, but if you flip over to, to Luke as a doctor, he adds this bit of information. Verse 44, it says, And being in agony... He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. What is that? There's a, a very rare medical condition known as hematidrosis, or blood sweat, as it's often been popularly called, which is the best explanation for what this text talks about. Listen to this one explanation. It says, research notes the presence of hematidrosis in people awaiting execution. And it's also been observed in soldiers before battle or in other cases where an individual was in fear for their lives. The capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. 
Blood usually oozes from the forehead, nails, and other skin surfaces. The episodes may be preceded by intense headache and abdominal pain. And this is the kind of anguish that Jesus faced as he's preparing for crucifixion. And where did Jesus go when his heart was overwhelmed, when he was literally surrounded by grief and distress? He used every ounce of strength that he had to get to that place, to get to that familiar place. That's what he used his his energy for. He, He went to the place where he frequently met alone with the Father, and he poured out his soul in the garden. And again, I say to you, if if Jesus needed that, don't you think that we need that? (laughs) Where where, where do you go when when you feel overwhelmed? When when your heart is overwhelmed, where do you go? It's like, as the psalmist says, lead me to the rock, right? (laughs) When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications, listen to this, with loud crying and tears. In anguish, loud crying and tears. And brothers and sisters, I want to let you know that if there was not a Gethsemane, there would not be a Calvary. Because it was during this time that he was strengthened. The temptation for Christ that we find here was faced in prayer. And really, what we have here is a similar temptation that he suffered in the wilderness, where Christ was committing himself to the will of the Father, and he found strength for this temptation in his prayers. Jesus was strengthened in his time of prayer, even physically. It lets us know that an angel came to minister to him. Back in Luke 22, again, in verse 43, it says, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him during this time, and in that strength, Jesus was able to press forward. And that's the power of prayer. That's the power of prayer. Jesus was strengthened for what he had to face as he laid himself out before the Father. And just to apply this principle here, I have no idea what some of you may be going through. I know what some of you are going through. I don't know what all of you are going through. But I can let you know this, that you can find power in prayer. You can find power in prayer. I can't promise you that your trial is going to pass, that you know, if you go to the Lord in prayer, your trial will be removed. I make no promise like that because Scripture doesn't make that promise, right? And it would be foolish for me to stand up here and say, oh, everything's going to be all right. Just go to God. Just pray about it. That's not what the Scripture promises. The Bible lets us know in the world you will have tribulation. Again, we reminded this, this, this weekend that, that we're in a war. <laughs> Why would you think it's going to be easy? This is is war. This is battle, right? This isn't easy. So we can't promise that, you know, you just go to the Lord and everything will be taken care of. All your trials will be removed. You know, if you just name it and claim it enough and, you know, have enough faith, you know, God will make sure that all your trials disappear. That's not what we promise. Your cup of suffering or affliction may not pass, but I can assure you that if you go to the Lord, that the Lord has all the resources that you need to face whatever you're dealing with. Hebrews 4, verse 16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You can go to the Lord and find help. My help comes from the Lord, right? My help comes from the Lord. But sadly, the disciples here didn't think they, 
think it needed all that. You know, it don't take all that. It's not that serious. You know, we got the Lord over here. You know, we got 11 strong. We're 11 strong. We're deep. Does it really take all that? Look back at verse 36. Jesus came and with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. If he's saying, I'm going over there to pray, what does he expect them to do over on the other side? <laughs> pray, right? I'm going to go over there to pray and you stay here and pray. That would have been the expectation. Pray. <laughs> but we don't, we don't hear that the disciples ever breathed a word of prayer. All three of the disciples uh, here proclaim their greatest loyalty to Jesus. The three disciples that kind of on the inner circle came the closest. They had a duty. Actually, in verse 37 to 38, it says, He took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Specifically, he told these disciples that he was a, a breath away from death. Can you just keep watch with me? Can, can you stay alert? Can you pray? That would have been the expectation. These are the disciples who proclaimed their loyalty to Jesus. If you remember uh, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, uh, they proclaimed their loyalty back in Matthew chapter 20. Remember that? They said, I'm able to drink the cup. What, what cup you got, Jesus? Whatever cup it is, I can drink that. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we're able. Who do you think they're depending on? Themselves. Oh, Jesus, whatever, just bring it. Whatever it is, we're ready. Sign us up. We're ready for it. Had no idea what they're asking for. Verse 23, he said to them, my cup you shall drink. <laughs> Peter, on this very night, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I will not deny you. Well, there's a problem there. <laughs> problem. It's, it's about me. I will not deny you. We are able James, John, Peter all brought in, proclaimed their greatest loyalty to Christ, and now it's their opportunity to prove their loyalty. And what do we find them doing? Sound asleep. Sound asleep. He pulls them close enough where they might have even been able to hear the echoes of his prayer. He's crying out with loud tears. So, so here is Jesus, he's crying out loud, weeping before the Father, in anguish, and it's not enough to wake his disciples up? Verse 20, 41 of Luke 22, it says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, maybe 50 yards away, within earshot of the innermost expressions of the most holy conversation. And verse 40 says he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. This is where we learn about the protection of prayer. This is the protection that they ignored. Verse 40, came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? <laughs> keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
During our time in seminary, one of our uh, instructors, our professor, uh, Dr. Roskup, uh, he was known as a man of prayer and took his class on prayer. And one of the classes uh, that I took, at, one of the assignments was to, to pray for an hour a day. An hour a day. And I can remember a number of times bowing my head, you know, and you're just down there for like an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and then you look up at the clock and only 10, 15 minutes has passed by. (laughs) And I realized how much more I needed to grow my discipline. (laughs) Couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? There's a man by the name of Oswald Sanders. He wrote... Prayer is indeed the Christian's vital breath and native air. But strange paradox, most of us find it hard to pray. We do not naturally delight in drawing near to God. We sometimes pay lip service to the delight of power of prayer. We call it indispensable. We know the scriptures call for it, yet we often fail to pray. And how how true that is. And there was no more critical night for these disciples to be up and at it, right? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And here these disciples forfeited the strength that they needed to face the temptation that was about to hit them. And there are some of us who struggle with that same temptation to neglect the the prayer that we need to offer before the Lord. The watches of the night for a Roman military guard lasted for three Hours each, six to nine, ten to uh, six to nine, nine to twelve, twelve to three, and three to six. The watches of the night, you know, four watches in the night, three hours. A Roman guard had to stay awake, keep watch, stay on guard. And if a Roman soldier fell asleep at his post, he could be severely disciplined or killed. To fall asleep on your post was a criminal offense. You you don't fall asleep during your watch. That's your opportunity. You stay up there. You're guarding the rest of us. Jesus didn't even ask for three. I mean, a Roman soldier would have been required to stay on watch for three. He says, couldn't you even keep watch one? One hour? What a difference that hour would have made. Listen to the kind of protection that was being offered in prayer. Listen to this, verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. What was being offered? Guys, there's there's a temptation that's coming, I'm telling you, ahead of time. There's a temptation coming, but you don't have to enter into that temptation if you'll stay awake and pray. Pray that you may not enter into this temptation. Not that you won't be tempted, but you don't have to enter into it. That's what's being offered here. You you can find a victory over your temptations. Freedom from temptation and prayer. That's the hope that's attached to the prayer. Stay awake, pray. But not even an hour and they're already gone. Do you know that there's no hope in rehabilitating the flesh? (laughs) Our, our, Our natural flesh does not want to stay in prayer. I think this is where we as believers, you know, we have sometimes the, the wrong idea that somehow I'm going to redeem the flesh. We live in this unredeemed humanness that doesn't want to pray. 
Our flesh doesn't, doesn't want to pray, and it never will. That's not the, the natural bent of our flesh, right? We still walk around in it. Our flesh wants to watch another video, eat another burger, go to sleep. That's what our flesh wants to do. Why, why can you sit, sit and watch a movie for three hours straight and not even think about going to the bathroom? Just engage, three hours, just like. And then you'll stay for the end credits. Why, why can you do that? Three hours, you'll... you'll you can, you can stay and watch. You can keep watch for three hours if a movie's on, right? Because that's what the flesh enjoys. The flesh doesn't mind the movie. The flesh minds prayer, though. You know, as soon as you try to set aside some time for prayer and trying to get focused, it's like, why is it so hot in here? <laughs> Anybody fix that? Maybe I need, to, I need to fix that thermostat, you know? This this carpet. I need to change the carpet too. And it's like all of a sudden your mind's everywhere else. What are we having for dinner tonight? I wonder, maybe all of a sudden your mind is just wandering everywhere when it's time to pray. The unredeemed flesh that we live in is not a friend to your sanctification. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. It's like you want to pray, but somehow this flesh just doesn't want to get with the program, right? That's why you got to put it to death. I know you want to go to sleep, but you're waking up. You're going to wake up. I know you want to eat right now, but no, you're going to put that down. You're not going to go eat right now. Yeah, it's hot in here. Deal with it, (laughs) right? It's like you got to fight the flesh to do what you know you're supposed to do. you got to fight this thing. Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. There's not a desire to do the good in the flesh. Romans 7, 24, Paul cries out, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And thank God there's going to come a time when we're going to be done with this sinful flesh, right? That's called heaven. That's called glorification. When we'll always desire to do what the Lord commands us to do. But until then, it's like we're still kind of dragging this thing around. It's like, get with it. (laughs) And you got to beat this thing into submission. I'm not going to listen to you right now. Discipline my body and make it my slave. That's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I discipline my body. You got to get it under control, self-control. We have to do what our bodies on their own refuse to do. And we can't count on the flesh to do this for us, right? You need power. You need strength. You need to go to the Lord. You need to trust in Him. A number of commentators have pointed out that Jesus' second prayer transition here back in Matthew 26, as He continues to pray, it says He went away again a second time, verse 42. And here we see the resolve of Christ. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. While the disciples are dozing off, Jesus is resolved to pray. Resolved to pray. Like I said, it was in the prayer that he found his strength. He found his strength in his prayers. He was resolved in his prayers. If this cannot pass away, 
Unless I drink it, your will be done. I'm resolved to do what you asked me to do. That's the same kind of resolve that we need. Lord, if this is your will, I'm going to do your will. <laughs> I'm going to do your will. There's a persistence in prayer. Look at verse 43. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. When Jesus returns the second time, we don't know what he said. But Mark adds this in verse 40, chapter 14 and verse 40. It says that, and again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. <laughs> this is the second time they, you know, Jesus comes to, to wake them up, and at this point, they, they don't even have an excuse. I don't, I don't know what to say. What do you say the second time that Jesus wakes you up? <laughs> you know, maybe you could come up with an excuse the first time, but the second time? Really? Two hours, gone. Jesus goes back for a third time. He left them again, went away, and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Resolved in his prayers. And we even see the resolve that he had in his prayers by the repetition of his prayer. He said the same thing once more. You know, there's some people that... that tell you that repetition in prayer isn't the right thing. They say, you know, you don't come to the Lord the same, with the same prayer more than once. You know, they'll say that that's a lack of faith. You know, don't you think he heard you the first time? Why would you come to him a second time or a third time saying the same thing? But the Bible does not prohibit sincere repetition. Sincere repetition. And we've got many biblical examples of sincere repetition. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, he prayed three times for the resurrection of the widow's Son, three times, same prayer. First Kings 18, he prayed seven times for rain. Same prayer, seven times. Daniel 10, he says he prayed for three weeks for an answer from the Lord. Three weeks in prayer. Jesus encourages persistence in prayer. The persistent widow, he gives the, the parable in Luke chapter 18, who came with, to the judge with the same request. And Jesus looks at that and he calls it faith. It's faith to continue to come back to the Lord, even with the same request. How is that faith? Because it lets the Lord know, I'm not going anywhere else. Where, where else can I go? <laughs> I'm going to co continue to just bring my heart back before you again and again and again. Because what else do I have? I only have you. It's, it's, it's faith to continue to come before the Lord. Sincere repetition is not prohibited in Scripture. It's the, the meaningless repetition. You know, when you just come and you're not even thinking about what you're praying. You know, there's a lot of people who are, who are doing that today. You know, they're just going through their beads, kind of repeating their prayers mindlessly, just going through the motions. Am I lying? <laughs> going through the motions. Our Father, art in heaven, all be thy name, just kind of going through it. There's people who pray and they're not even sure what they're saying because it's not intelligible. Meaningless repetition. Jesus uses the word in Matthew 6 when he speaks about meaningless repetition, the, the word batalageo. It could be understood as a, a stammering, a stuttering. It's speech that didn't make any sense. It's just a moving the, the lips. Bada, 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 bada. <laughs> Jesus says that's, that's not the kind of prayer that you engage in, just meaningless repetition. But meaningful repetition where I'm, I'm pleading, I'm bringing my heart before the Lord just again and again and again. That's, that's what pleases God. We, we come before the Lord with meaningful repetition because we trust in him. And this is 
what Jesus gives us the example of. As he comes before the Father again, not my will, but your will be done. That's, that's, a, that's the heart of a believer. Not my will, but your will be done. In his book, uh, Rise and Be Healed, Benny Hinn says, Never, ever, ever go to the Lord and say, If it be thy will. Don't allow such faith-destroying words to be spoken from your mouth. When you pray, if it be your will, Lord, faith will be destroyed. Doubt will billow up and flood your being. Be on guard against words like this, which will rob you of your faith and drag you down into despair. What, what kind of blasphemy is that? So you take the, the words of our Lord and now you say that they're faith-destroying words. And it's not just him. Several faith teachers say the same thing. Oh, you don't come to the Lord and don't bring your prayer a second time, third time. Oh, you don't go and say thy will be. I mean, arguing directly against the words of Christ. Far from dragging Christ into despair, it was this prayer, thy will be done, that pulled Christ out of despair. (laughs) And the more he prayed, thy will be done, the more resolute he became, the more strengthened he became. This is the kind of prayer that we're to pray. Lord, thy will be done. I'm bringing my heart before you and I'm saying that whatever you desire, that's what I desire, Lord. Your will be done. And even when our hearts might struggle, right? And we're trying to drag this unredeemed flesh to to do what we know we're supposed to do. Lord, I, I, I know even right now I'm struggling with this, but Lord, your will be done. Is this the kind of persistence that you have when you come before the Lord, when you face your trial? What about your Gethsemane? <laughs> when you're, you find yourself engulfed by grief and distress, do you, do you continually bring your heart before the Lord? Or do you look for some other kind of relief? So you see, that's, where, well, that's faith-destroying, when you look for another relief besides the Lord. It's like, I've been doing this long enough. Okay, where's, where, where's, the, where's the exit button here? You know, I need to get off of this train. You know, you go to drugs, you go to alcohol, you go to, you know, immoral relationships. You know, I need some kind of relief here. So you go somewhere else. Let me just turn on the, the tube and just forget life or whatever it might be. No, you, you bring it before the Lord. You constantly bring yourself before the Lord. Discipline yourself. Kind of like uh, Jacob who wrestled with God in Genesis 32. I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm going to hold on. Even if my hip's out of joint, I'm still, I'm still wrestling. I'm still there. I'm still in the fight. I can't let you go. You're the only hope that I have. I don't, I don't have any other hope. This is where we need to enter into. This leads us to our final point, the priority of prayer. Verse 45. It says, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Why, why was uh, prayer so much of a priority? Why was it so necessary that the disciples be praying? Because the trial was going to come, ready or not. You understand that? Why, why was it such a priority? Because, guys, when, when, when the, the mob comes, you're not going to have time to be prayed up then. You needed to be doing it before time. What's the priority of prayer? You don't know when your trial is going to hit. You need to be prayed up. When the trial hit, it was going to be too late. Ready or not, here it comes. The day of reckoning was at hand. It was obvious that only one was prepared. (laughs) Disciples were not prepared. 
Are, are you still sleeping? Still sleeping and resting, guys? Behold, the hour is at hand. It's, it's too late. The hour is here, guys. This is what I was trying to prepare you for ahead of time. But now it's here. Behold, the hour is here. It's here. And you're still sleeping and resting. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. Since the oldest Greek texts don't contain punctuation, there's some debate about was this a question or was it a statement? Was it, are you still sleeping or was it, keep on sleeping? But because of the following context where he says, get up, it's obvious that it was, even if he said, keep on sleeping, it was sarcastic. You know, keep sleeping now. It's like, it's too late. Jesus is saying, get up. You're still sleeping? It's too late. It's too late, guys. John 18, verse 3, Judas then having received the Roman cohort, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So it's likely at this time that, as Jesus is saying, the hour is at hand, that he's already seeing these torches that have been lit, just kind of like dotted across the mountain slopes, making their way up to the place. So Jesus comes back the third time and he says, it's here, here they come, the hour is at hand. Everything that Jesus predicted was about to take place. He was being betrayed. He was about to be delivered. But Jesus also predicted that something else would happen. What else did he predict? That you will all fall away. That's the other thing he predicted. You will all fall away. And that's about to happen here. They would all fall away. But it didn't have to be like this. Why did they all fall away? It's because they didn't pray. That's why you all fall away, because you're not going to do what I'm telling you to do. And Jesus already knew that they wouldn't do what he was telling them to do. And that's why he predicted that you'll all fall away. You're all going to fall away because you're not going to listen. Even after the constant reminders, pray, pray, pray. All right, too late. Just like I said, just like I said, they had their opportunity And it's because they boasted too much in their own ability that they weren't able to stand when the trial came. Boasted too much and prayed too little. Boasted too much and prayed too little. One commentator said, Peter's three denials in the courtyard followed Peter's three naps in the garden. Jesus predicted that they would all fall away, but it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened because of a lack of prayer. You know, many times Jesus says, O ye of little faith, he could easily have said, O ye of little prayer. <laughs> and if their Lord and Master had to be strengthened through prayer, what chance did they think they had without it? But that's true for all of us, isn't it? In so many ways, we're just like the disciples. We trust in our own strength. We boast about what we'll never do. Oh, that'll never be me. You know, you see somebody walk away from their marriage. Oh, that, that won't be me. Won't be me, not me. See somebody embezzling money. Oh, not, not me. That wouldn't happen to me. Who do you think you are? <laughs> do you boast in yourself about what you'll never do? Do you declare your love and loyalty to Christ and then you're asleep on the job, asleep at your post? And what does the Lord do with these disciples who are sleeping on the job? And this, this is where we find some, some encouragement here. This isn't all like just, you know, taking you to the woodshed here. What does the Lord do with these disciples who are asleep on the job? He doesn't say, get out of here, I'm finished with you. <laughs> that, that's it, I'm done. 
I've tried with you guys how many times? Just get up and get gone. Get lost. That's not what he says. He says, get up and let us be going. <laughs> let us be going. He remains committed to his disciples to the very end. Even though they were sleeping on the watch, it would have been a reason for execution, like I said, with the Roman soldiers. They would have been executed for falling asleep on their watch. It would have been over. But Jesus doesn't say, get out of here, it's done. He says, come on, let's, let's be going. These guys are with me. These sleepy-headed disciples, they're still mine. And that's what the Lord says to us as well, right? Even though we are found at times sleeping on our watch, he doesn't leave us or forsake us. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that comforting? The Lord says, come on, let's, let's go. You're, you're still one of mine. You're still with me. We're the ones who deserve death. We're the ones who deserve to take the cup of wrath. But what does Jesus do? I'll, I'll take the, the cup of wrath in your place. Let, let's be going, you're still mine, because I'm going to suffer for the sins that you're committing even now. Jesus is about to take the cup into his hands that the Father had given him, and he prepares to drink it down to the last drop. One writer said, Death and curse was in our cup. O Christ, was full for thee, but thou hast drained it to the last drop, and it's empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, now blessings poured out for me. Strengthened by his father through prayer, he approaches the mob resolved to accomplish the will of the father, and we can praise God that at least one person in that garden stayed awake, right? He's the one who keeps our soul safe. He's the one who holds us fast. And praise God, we have a champion who keeps and guards our souls because we know we can't. He's the one who keeps watch. And just as a reminder, for those of you who are believers, guess what Jesus is doing even right now? He is interceding for you. He is interceding for you. I'll leave you with this thought from uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We have an intercessor. And because of his prayer in Gethsemane, there was a victory at Calvary. And now he's in heaven right now doing what we often fail to do, which is to pray. He's interceding for us even now. And all of us can say hallelujah. What a savior. Amen. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you God so much for this time that we've had in your word. Your word is so rich, so powerful, so convicting, challenging. But Father, it brings us comfort as well. It brings us the comfort that, that Jesus, even though these disciples uh, abandoned their post, they were unfaithful. But he still says, come up, get up, let us be going. You're still mine, you still belong to me. He still defends his disciples before the angry mob. Let these go. I'm the one that you seek, let these go. He defends his disciples and then he would die for his disciples. And then, even after his resurrection, he would continue to intercede for his disciples. Father, we're thankful for the ministry of Christ. And we pray that you would help us as those who belong to you. Our Lord, that you would help us to follow this example of prayer that our Lord set for us. Help us to keep watch so that our, our souls don't enter into temptation. Now, Father, we know that we live in a 
a world that's full of dangerous toils and snares. We're in a battle. Uh, help us to, to take up the, the resources that you've given to us, the truth in prayer. Help us to, to surround ourselves with truth when, we're, when our, our hearts are surrounded by grief. Help us to surround ourselves with prayer, to, to bathe ourselves in prayer for us, for our families, for our church, for our nation. Father, I pray that we would come before you often because there's nowhere else that we can go. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.